to take you in this podcast from the origins of the First World War in 1914 to the Russian Revolution and Civil War, uh, which wind up in 1920-21, to, to give you an overview of the opening phase of what Eric Hobsbawm called the Age of Catastrophe and help get you ready for Battleship Potemkin and Bulgakov's Heart of a Dog. So you know, this, this age of crisis, of catastrophe, opens in 1914 with World War I, and you know, historians are left with a massive, massive question to explain where did World War I come from. Right? There are libraries, libraries filled with books uh, on the subject uh, to try to narrow down this you know, overwhelming uh, amount of information I've tried to divide things up in this, the second slide for this PowerPoint unit, uh, PowerPoint presentation. You'll see on the origins of World War One into a, a series of stages, right? The long, medium, and the short run. Uh, all of which push those three conflicts that I've been talking about in our discussion sections. And you can see in the third slide that sort of three, three major. European rivalries all came together in a massive explosion. And the question is, when did, when did a, a global war uh, become inevitable and what were the driving causes um, pushing in, in that direction? So for the long-term causes, I would identify uh, you know, cultural causes, the, the flight from reason, the kinds of cultural changes we've been talking about for the first week or so of the of the semester, um, you know, historians often refer to what's known as a flight from reason, as the the realist tradition um, that I talked about with the Ancre portrait of Louis Bertin uh, gave way to modernism. Right, so. The, the, the realist tradition of the 19th century corresponds loosely to the British movement that I talked about, um, where uh, artistic modernism is connected to, to political liberalism, uh, to the gold standard, to free trade, um, to a belief in rationality in politics uh, and in society. Over the course of the second half of the 19th century, uh, you know, critics emerged who saw the artistic traditions as being superficial, uh, who thought that there were deeper, more powerful, maybe more emotional sources for art. Um, and you know, so I pointed you to the, to the Impressionist painters and in particular uh, to, to Pablo Picasso. And we talked about Charles Darwin, about Freud. We can see in a series of disciplines a growing suspicion of logic, of reason, of reasonableness, and a celebration of, of emotion, of anger, of force uh, as the 19th century shades into the, the 20th century. In politics, uh, you know, we see a move away from the classical liberalism of the middle of the 19th century, equality before the law uh, and free markets. And there was, especially as the Industrial Revolution picked up speed, uh, and a radically intensifying process of class conflict. Factories were getting larger. 
workers were organizing. You get powerful labor movements and socialist parties emerged in Europe in the second half of the, the 19th century and established elites tried to limit their gains. Uh, and so, you know, if you look um, for the second point on these long-term, uh, long-term causes of the war, you know, rising nationalism, uh, political elites would claim to speak on behalf of the nation uh, to rally patriotism as a way of avoiding working class demands, as a way of avoiding socialist uh, demands. The same is true for overseas imperialism. Right? The, the generation before World War I saw Europeans uh, fight with one another to extend their influence around the world especially in Africa and in Asia. And one of the main reasons for doing this uh, was to try to um, you know, drum up support to, um, to, to try to, um, I mean, I want to say divide, to try to distract, to try to uh, avoid giving meaningful social reforms at home. We see a more and more aggressive uh, imperial policy and political uh, gambits overseas. Okay, so for the long-term causes, if I move on to the to the medium term, um, you know we see uh, you know, there was an arms race. Again, to move very very quickly here, you know some of the biggest most transformational technological changes of the 19th century. We have railroads, the telegraph. Um, we have, you know, the machine gun. Uh, those three, I think, could include the steamship uh, in this. Those three or four technical breakthroughs made it possible to mobilize massive numbers of soldiers into the millions. Once that happens, uh, there was a, a shift from mercenary armies to conscript armies, which ends up changing. Um, the relationship between rulers and ruled. That is, the political elites and the ruling classes depended on ordinary people to serve as soldiers in the army in a way that they had never done before. Right? Armies were getting much bigger, they were becoming much more expensive. Um, and I, I think it's important to note you know, is that it's very difficult for politicians, but also for generals, to, to have more, more, power, more and more powerful weapons, bigger and bigger armies, and not to use them. Um, so the biggest change, and I think I've mentioned this in some of our sections, <clears throat> excuse me, was in Russia, where there was a massive rearmament campaign. You know, it starts in the 1890s, but it really picks up steam in the early 1900s where the Russian empire uses French money to start building railroads and factories, but also to start stockpiling munitions and to build up the army. But the, the Russian empire spent nearly, or nearly half of its government spending went to the armed forces. So by, by the time 1914 uh, comes around, the, the Russian army was bigger than Germany's. It was already bigger than Germany's, but uh, it, it was it was planned. It was uh, it was going to be three times larger than the German army in 1917, right? And that massive increase in Russia may put the Germans on the defensive, or rather, it made them more 
offensive because they were afraid if they didn't strike soon, they would they would lose the opportunity to do so. Um, we could point to, to navies. Navies were an even bigger uh, expense. Now, uh, you know, I've alluded to this uh, a number of times already. The, there was a very elaborate system of political alliances that connected the European powers to one another. As their armies were getting bigger and more powerful, each great power increasingly realized that they depended on their allies, right? that they, um, they couldn't go it alone. They couldn't hold off uh, you know, more than one of, uh, of their rivals at a time. Um, and and uh, so, you know, especially in the early years of the, the 20th century, we see Europe drifting into two large rival blocks. Uh, one was the, the Triple Entente, which brought Britain, France, and Russia together, and the Central Powers, which included Germany and Austria-Hungary. Right, so Britain needed France to control sea passage to India. France and Russia need each other to hold off Germany, which was the most dynamic uh, economy in Europe uh, and the single most powerful military. So any sign of weakness um, shown by an ally was perceived as a risk. Uh, and you know, I, I would emphasize this in particular with the case of Germany, who looked at their partner, Austria-Hungary, as a liability. But German military leaders talked about feeling as though they were shackled to a corpse because uh, the, the Habsburg Empire, the Austro-Hungarian Empire, was so weak and was so divided, was so diverse. There were so many different ethnic and religious groups in the empire that they were afraid it wouldn't hold together. Uh, and in fact, you see from the, the middle of the 19th century onwards, a series of nationalist splinter movements that threatened to unravel the, the Habsburg empire altogether. Okay, so you know, I've been talking in very broad strokes about the, sort of the long-term and the medium-term, <coughs> excuse me, forces that were pushing Europe towards war, uh, and then there were a series of political crises, uh, you know, one after the other um, in the colonies. Um, there are a series of crises over, you know, in between France and Germany in Morocco. Uh, there were wars in the Balkans, 1912, 1913. So you know, there were a whole series of regional crises, which I don't really want to go too far into the details. But what happens in 1914 is that what looks like another one of these regional crises spirals out of control. Uh, and I'll have a lot more to say about that spiraling out of control in the next unit uh, when we're talking more directly about uh, World War I. But what I want to do uh, for the rest of this lecture is talk about, well, why does Russia fall apart? Uh, all of the different countries, uh, all of, nobody won World War I, but some countries did worse than others. Uh, and Russia does worst of all. Um, uh, so you know, the, the first point I want to make in this regard is that every country, all of the warring parties, uh, were caught by surprise in 1914. Uh, 
right? They all expected a war of movement uh, that would be brutal, that would be uh, you know incredibly difficult, but they didn't think that it would be possible for the war to drag on and on the way that it did. So what happens, uh, the war starts in August of, nine, of 1914, and by the fall of that year, uh, the fighting gets bogged down into a long series of, of trenches. And we have these two massively armed, incredibly powerful coalitions uh, fighting against one another. Okay, and the, the basic military challenge of World War I and World War II, for that matter, is that Germany needs to be able to, or Germany needs to strike a knockout blow um, because it's outnumbered. Um, whereas the allies on the other side, the British, the French, uh, the, the Russians, in the case of World War I, ultimately the United States, um, they need to be able to hold together their political coalition to keep from splitting apart. If they can do that and keep fighting, uh, there's enough more money, enough, enough more resources and manpower on the Allied side to be able to grind the, the Germans down. And that is ultimately what happens in both cases, but it was a very close run thing. Uh, and so, you know, when we're looking at World War One to try to understand which armies and which countries do better uh, than others, it had to do with their ability to adapt. It had to do with their ability to provide new weapons uh, and endless armaments uh, for a kind of fighting they didn't expect. Right? So they needed to develop or, or to produce massive numbers of machine guns and heavy artillery when they were expecting lighter artillery to, to really be the decisive uh, weapons. Uh, so they had to manage uh, factories, uh, armies, they had to manage the economy, they had to manage uh, and maintain social cohesion. Right, which turned out to, to work much better in the liberal demo representative democracies than it did in the big authoritarian empires. Right? So having a vast and sprawling population wasn't so helpful if uh, you, you couldn't maintain a certain degree of solidarity, if you couldn't get people to work together. If you couldn't handle certain kinds of, I mean, management challenges, uh, getting goods from one place to another, uh, making sure the trains could run on time, all of this depended on a skilled labor force that was much, um, uh, you know, much larger and more effectively organized in the more industrialized countries uh, of Northern and Western Europe. Okay, even in England uh, and France, which do relatively well in this regard, uh, there are mutinies and strikes. There are mutinies and strikes across Europe in 1916, especially in 1917. But it's only in Russia, or it's at least it's in Russia first, that we see uh, the country collapse into revolution. Okay, and so you know the the question I want to concentrate on for the rest of this. Uh, this, this podcast is well. Why Russia, and how does the how do those wartime conditions uh, ultimately influence and shape the the, the revolution that it produced? Um, 
Okay. I mean, as I say, um, you know, there was a red flag of revolution flying from Wales and Scotland in the West to St. Petersburg in the East. Um, you know, why Russia? Everybody was taken by surprise. Karl Marx, at the end of his life, when he thought about where revolution would uh, would emerge, he he thought probably England, uh, and if not England, it would be Germany. Even Lenin, uh, who was in exile in Zurich in in Switzerland, uh, couldn't believe you know, his eyes when the the revolution broke out in Russia. He said, "You know, it's staggering. It's so incredibly unexpected." The Russian Empire was desperately poor, uh, and the political elites, the, the Tsarist autocracy, refused any meaningful change. Uh, you know, political parties were first organized and legalized after a revolution in 1905. Right? Remember, the revolution of 1905 is the subject of the film Battleship Potemkin. So you know, it's in the aftermath of that revolution that Russia creates its first parliament, and you have organized legitimate political parties. Um, but the imperial authorities, they shut down the power of the parliament almost immediately. Right? Its powers are very strictly limited. Uh, the Tsar and Tsarina insisted on absolute power, which you know, they shared with their famous advisor Rasputin. So it's in Russia where the traditional social order survived intact. But you don't really see the emergence of a middle class, lawyers, doctors, uh, factory managers. I mean, they exist, but there are very few of them. It's an overwhelmingly agricultural country. Uh, so Russia is a great power. It's got the largest standing army uh, on the continent, um, but it struggled to supply it. Uh, the tensions were smoothed, smoothed over in 1914, uh, but only smoothed over. They were really bubbling uh, beneath the surface. Um, and so it's in Russia where the old regime collapses, and it collapsed completely in 1917 um, uh, with the emergence of, of the, the Russian Revolution in February. Uh, and what I want to suggest is that the nature of the Russian Revolution and the Soviet state that followed, right, the Bolshevik regime that was created uh, in 1917, have everything to do with the conditions created by the war. Right? So in this sense, I'm agreeing with Habsbaum uh, that World War I and the Russian Revolution have got to be understood together, right? The Russian empire was very vulnerable. Uh, in, in all likelihood, it was perfectly possible that socialism would emerge uh, in Russia. There were reformist currents uh, that stretched back well into the 19th century, but the Bolsheviks were a tiny minority, right? So the, the nature that you would get a communist dictatorship, I believe, uh, you know, was produced by the wartime circumstances. Okay, so I'm, I'm using these words, Bolshevik, uh, you know, uh, communist dictatorship. Well, what was a Bolshevik? What does the word itself mean? Uh, the word Bolshevik, um, well, the Bolsheviks to, to begin with were Marxist revolutionaries. As I say, they were a tiny minority uh, in 1917. Uh, you know, Lenin wasn't even in Russia uh, when the revolution broke out uh, in February uh, of that year. 
the Bolsheviks, they believed in centralized control. Uh, they believed in a vanguard, which is a tiny, a tiny group of basically professional revolutionaries. Uh, the Bolsheviks believed that a tiny minority of professional revolutionaries should lead the masses. That is, that change would never come if we waited for people to understand their own interests, that they had to be led, they had to be forced, they had to be dragged by a group of professional agitators. Right. They did not think that socialism would develop organically, and they opposed what is known as reformism, which is a, a movement on the socialist left to achieve change gradually and incrementally. Um, okay, so you know, I, I mentioned this term Bolshevik. It, it became current. Uh, it, it emerges in 1902, right, at a, a socialist party meeting where Russian socialists who were, you know, I need to keep insisting, a small minority, even of the Russian reformers in the early 20th century, um, the, the Bolsheviks dominated this, this meeting. And so the term Bolshevik means majority. But, okay, this is confusing. They, they called themselves the majority, but they really were a, a tiny group of people. Uh, the, the Mensheviks, Mensheviks was a rival group of socialists. Menshevik means minority. All right, there were actually more Mensheviks than Bolsheviks in Russia uh, in 1900, in 1910, in 1914. But really the biggest group of Russian uh, reformists and socialists weren't uh, Bolsheviks or Mensheviks. They were SRs, social revolutionaries by far the biggest group of uh, radical reformers in Russia who wanted to tear down the old regime and create a, a new kind of socialist government, uh, they believed that change would have to come from the countryside. Uh, and they believed in a much more open and a much more democratic and a much more organic vision of change. They thought that it was pointless to try to force people to be free, to try to drag people kicking and screaming uh, to, to socialism. They wanted an inclusive movement. That was the majority of Russian reformers in 1914, even in 1917, at least in early 1917. So what happens in the early phases of the revolution is that the country simply collapsed. February it sees an implosion. <coughs> Excuse me. The Tsar was unable to pay his troops. Uh, there were food shortages, especially in, in Petersburg. Uh, and as the, the Germans were winning the war on the Eastern Front, um, you know, there, were, there were food riots in Petersburg. And so the Tsar hastily calls out his troops and tells them uh, to, to, to fire on, on the crowd. And the soldiers say, well, you know, that's my sister or that's, that's my cousin. Why should we shoot at them? You haven't paid us for months and months. And so the, the, the Tsar ultimately loses uh, the, the support of um, the, the support of the army. Uh, and so you know the, the government collapses. Uh, in, in the first instance, we have a group of uh, reformers starting with you know aristocratic reformers who, who wanted the, the Russian parliament to succeed. So these would be liberal reformers. Uh, the Prince Lvov 
LGOV was the most prominent among them in the early phase of the, the revolution. Um, so they, they tried to revive, uh, you know, to give new power to the, the Russian parliament. Uh, and there was also a grassroots mo uh, movement uh, known as the Soviets. Now, a, a Soviet is a workers' council. Uh, and so, you know, workers' councils you know, demanded a share of power along with the parliament. And so uh, in, from February through the spring of 1917, there was a, a period of, of dual government. Um, I mean, I'm, I'm moving you know, fairly quickly here, but in, in the midst of this really chaotic situation, we see increasingly progressive politicians uh, take over. So first, I would call your attention to Prince Lvov. Uh, he was an aristocrat and a liberal who uh, you know, had high hopes for the Russian parliament. You know, another figure that I would uh, you know, emphasize for you, you know, as the, the spring is uh, becoming increasingly chaotic, was the rise of Alexander Kerensky. He was a very charismatic social revolutionary. So now we're moving in to the socialist camp. But um, both the liberals, Lvov and Kerensky, uh, supported the Russian war effort. Right? In the spring of 1917, the Russian army, army was losing badly to Germany on the Eastern Front. Uh, and even the early revolutionary leaders wanted to try to rally popular opinion behind a more progressive government and hope that the soldiers would start fighting again to ease the military situation. But in both cases, they failed and they failed miserably. And so Lenin and Trotsky, their followers, they took advantage of this. Uh, they pointed out that uh, you know, it was the sort of the, the liberals and the social revolutionaries who compromised themselves, who continued to demand that workers and soldiers fight and die for somebody else's war, right? This was not a Russian war. No one could really explain to Russian soldiers or farmers what they were fighting for. It was really a dynastic war on behalf of the, the, the Russian czar. Uh, and so in October of 1917, Lenin and Trotsky uh, seized power, right? They launched a coup. Um, so over the course of the summer, the Bolsheviks are picking up numbers of uh, a relatively young, relatively uneducated, but very, very angry group of followers. And they had organized professional party elites uh, you know, who were used to dealing with, with chaos. And this was the political faction, the political group that ended up running the table in 1917. Um, and their initial political program, you should remember this slogan, it was peace, land, and bread. Right? So the first plank of Lenin and Trotsky's uh, program uh, was peace. Right? If you support us, we will take you out of World War One, uh, and so uh, you know, they, they immediately had you know widespread support among the frontline soldiers. Uh, land. Well, what does land mean? Land meant that for all of the peasants in the countryside who had occupied uh, aristocratic estates, Lenin was promising them, if you support us, 
you can keep the land that you're occupying. And you know uh, that if there is a, um, a restoration, if the, the, the monarchy comes back or if you know, politicians sympathetic to the monarchy come back, they're going to shoot you. Uh, and at a minimum, they're going to steal your land. Right, so the first two planks, peace, land, and bread, they, they promised bread, uh, they promised food to the entire population. Right? The problem was having promised uh, you know, peace and land, producing bread turned out to be incredibly difficult. Um, so uh, what I want to emphasize here is that it was not so surprising that the Bolsheviks were able to seize power in the first place. They were the, the most disciplined, the most organized, the most rigid uh, of, of the various revolutionary movements. What really was uh, quite striking and amazing was that they were able to, to hold on to power. Uh, and to hold on to power, they had to fight an incredibly brutal civil war. Um, okay. Uh, so, uh, you know, the, the civil, the Russian civil war breaks out, you know, almost, uh, immediately where you have white armies of conservatives trying to bring back the Russian old regime, fighting against the red armies of the Bolshevik control. Uh, and you, you also had, you know, foreign armies, including the United States, France, and other uh, European armies actually sent troops. You can see the slide on PowerPoint of the uh, American intervention into the Russian Civil War. It seemed really quite uh, surprising that this new regime uh, would be able to hold together. After all, the, the military, the officer corps of the Russian military was overwhelmingly aristocratic. So it didn't at first, it seemed really surprising that the Bolsheviks would hold on. Um, okay, so I, how were they able to hold on? The Bolsheviks had two main advantages uh, that, that did, in fact, enable them to hold on. The first was that they were unified uh, and they were fighting against a coalition that had a great deal of difficulty communicating with one another, organizing itself. Uh, so this really was a, a major asset. Uh, and the other was that the, the Bolsheviks controlled Moscow and St. Petersburg. So they controlled the historic Russian heartland. And with it, they controlled the, the Russian uh, railroad grid. So if you look at the slide on PowerPoint, the, um, the Russian Civil War, and you can see the, the various fronts uh, in the, the Russian Civil War, and you can see where the Russian rail, railway lines went. Uh, and uh, the, the way the railway was laid out, it made it relatively easy for the Bolsheviks to move troops from one front to the other, whereas their opponents, uh, the counter-revolutionary white armies, uh, had enormous difficulties of logistics, of supply, and communication all around the, the exterior. Um, okay, so uh, you know, ha having held on to power into to 1920, you know, Lenin's hope uh, going into the revolution was that the revolution would spread, right? 
He thought it would be a spark. He was expecting the revolution to move from Russia uh, into Germany in particular, and then spreading like a nuclear reaction to the, the rest of the world. Um, you know, he, he thought that uh, the, uh, you know, in 1920, when, when um, uh, Lenin invaded Poland, he was expecting to roll over Poland and to continue on into Germany where he would be welcomed with open arms. But the Polish army beat him. Right? The, the Polish army uh, you know, prevented the Bolsheviks uh, from, from marching through. And the, the revolution, which you know, there was a revolution in Germany in 1919, uh, but it ended really pretty quickly with a liberal democratic government and not a socialist one. Um, so at, at the end of the day, the slogan of peace, land, and bread uh, enabled Lenin and Trotsky to consolidate a government in Russia, um, but not, not to extend it. Um, so if there's one aspect of this new Soviet state, this Bolshevik dictatorship, that I can emphasize, it would be just how violent it was and, and the degree to which it targeted its own people. I think in, in that respect, uh, you know, the, the Soviet di dictatorship really is unusual in the degree to which it targets you know, not just a group of, you know, a particular group of opponents or minorities, but the entire population. Right. And just to, to give you uh, a sense of it, uh, I've got a quote from Lenin. Now, this is in the midst of uh, the, the Russian Civil War uh, raging in the, the South. Uh, Lenin, Lenin uh, you know, writes to one of his local leaders, and he says, um, uh, Comrade, the Kulak uprising in your five districts must be crushed without pity. The interest of the whole revolution demand it an example must be made. Hang, and I mean hang so that the people can see not less than a hundred known kulaks, rich men, bloodsuckers. Publish their names, take away all their grain, identify hostages. Do this so that for hundreds of miles around, the people can see, tremble, know and cry. They are killing and will go on killing the bloodsucking kulaks. Yours, Lenin. P.S. Find tougher people. Unquote. Uh, and so this term kulak simply means wealthy peasant. Um, but there was never a definition of what it meant to be a wealthy peasant. In practice, to be a kulak simply meant to be an enemy of the regime or somebody that the regime suspected uh, of hoarding grain uh, or of disloyalty. Uh, and it's one of the distinctive features of the, the Soviet Union that it created this elaborate gulag prison system during peacetime. Right, so I'll come back to this comparison, especially to, to compare the Soviet and the Nazi systems uh, later on. But, but for now, I, I want to tie together this discussion of the early Soviet experience um, with a, a, a quick you know, outline of the chronology and periodization. Right? So I've been talking about the, the Russian Revolution and Civil War. The revolution ran from 1917 to 1918, the Civil War from 1918 to 1920, and then there's a period after the Russian Civil War known as the New Economic Policy. 
So in 1920, uh, Russia was in shambles. There was rampant uh, epidemic disease. Uh, the economy was in tatters. Uh, and so Lenin pulled back from what was known as war socialism, from the, the discipline of, and organization of the war years. And he, he eased restrictions. He eased control of the government. Uh, so during this NEP, New Economic Policy, period, um, the, the government held on to what Lenin referred to as the commanding heights, which would be the railroads, the metals industry, the railroads, but it allowed uh, mom and pop stores, right? it allowed commerce, uh, it did not nationalize all property, it allowed peasants to, to trade with one another, uh, shops to open so that the country could catch its breath uh, and breathe for a moment. And you know, this was in a period before Stalin uh, took over. And so, you know, at the time, people thought that the atrocities and the violence of the Soviet system were a byproduct of uh, civil war and of revolution. And it's in this uh, NEP period that both Battleship Potemkin and Heart of a Dog uh, are, are produced. And so there's uncertainty about the long-term trajectory uh, of the, the revolution. There, there were disagreements among revolutionaries about which way the, the revolution should go. Uh, the sort of the more moderate, more open, relatively more democratic sort of strains of the social revolutionaries lived on with politicians like a man named Bukharin, uh, who wanted uh, uh, to allow the countryside uh, more freedoms. Uh, and you know, he was opposed by Trotsky uh, and what was known as the New Left. The New Left wanted to uh, organize the economy to have a crash industrialization um, and this was ultimately the policy that, um, that Stalin would take over after he had purged Trotsky and his followers. Uh, I, I bring this up because one of Trotsky's close associates on the new left, uh, his economics minister, was a man named Priobozhensky, right? And Priobozhensky is the name of the doctor in Heart of a Dog, right? So. Uh, you know, I, I bring this up as a sort of to, to provide you some background uh, on the sort of the immediate context for the creation of both Heart of a Dog uh, and Battleship Potemkin. Uh, and so these are the, 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 the issues and themes that I'd like to pick up in the discussion section.